Every student is unique. Every student learns differently, and every student matters. This is Idea Exchange, the future of K-12 education series, brought to you by Macmillan Paston Smith Architecture. What do you think of when you hear the words equity, equality of outcome, diversity, access, mobility? We're hearing these topics more and more in politics, social settings, and the workplace. What does equity mean in an educational context? How are issues of equity dealt with in public education? Today, I'm joined again by Dr. Russell Booker, a former superintendent of education for Spartanburg School District 7 and the current CEO of One Acorn, an advocacy group promoting better outcomes in communities. Dr. Booker, thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Ben. Glad to be here. And what, what great questions you, you posed as we were, were kicking this off. Do you want me to try to address some of those? Or? Uh, absolutely. Start, yeah. to, start to address so, those straight know, away. So you know, one of the things you, you asked was, you know, what do you think about when you hear those words, equity and equality and, you know, diversity, a lot of those words we're hearing now. And for me, you know, the first thing I think about when I hear those words is I, I wish I knew early on in my career what I know now. Uh, you know, there's so much talk about equity and diversity. And we really weren't having those conversations when I started off in education in the early 1990s. I had no idea uh, about concepts of economic and social mobility, um, much less of the role that I could play as a teacher and as an administrator, helping my students realize some of that. So we do hear those words often, as you mentioned, and you talked about the social and the political context in which we're hearing those words now. I think that's so true. Uh, and I don't think today we can separate the social from the political because, you know, things have become so polarizing. These sure. days. And I hate that. Um, but at the same time, Ben, I, I don't think we can have conversations around equity without talking about concepts that associate with race as well, because it plays such a key role, you know, within the context of of equitable outcomes. Well, I think you know, maybe one of the places to start is it can mean a lot of different things. Yes. So what is what does equity really mean in an educational context in that definition standpoint? Because I think if we start there, we can start to unravel how it yeah. affects positively uh, the educational outcomes that we're all desiring. Yeah. So I'll tell you what equity is not. It's not equality. It's not giving everybody the same thing. You know, at, at the simplest you know, definition level, equity is uh, making sure that people have access to opportunities. Looking at that from an educational vantage point, uh, at, at a simple level, it means that children and classrooms or schools and districts, communities, and even states have what they need to provide opportunities for access for the children they're serving, cradle through career. At a more complex level, within the context of education, it means that barriers that have hindered that access to opportunity should be removed. And identifying those barriers and putting systems and practices in place to allow that access is where I think the, the work really comes in. And I think probably as you're, as you're thinking about this too, is that we all know that every even individual student uh, learns differently, is unique in some uh, different way. So as we think about that definition um, and providing access to programs and services, what are those, what are those programs and services yeah. that all students need uh, 
to succeed? How do we bring them all up? Yeah. Well, you know, I'll tell you, I've I've grown over the years. Uh, I've matured um, over these last 29, 30 years as well. I understand the complexities of, of children. I understand the complexities of, of families. Um, but one thing, you talked about that unique child. One thing that's remained consistent with me has been, you know, my belief in the innate ability and giftedness of every child. Uh, you know, I would hope if you were to ever go back and talk to students who I worked with along the years, whether you know, I taught them or I was their counselor or an administrator, that they would say Mr. Booker or Coach Booker or Dr. Booker, depends on that time period, you know, that they would say, you know, well, he really cared about me. And I think that really is the first step as we talk about equity. But I've also learned over the years the impact that the environment has on our children. Man. Um and I've come to understand, you know, the power, even as an administrator, of restorative practices when dealing with children as opposed to punitive practices that I was, you know, guilty of as a principal. Um, you know, I've come to, to know now that uh, things like social capital and human capital and financial capital are essential um, in a child's life and, and giving them the opportunities they need moving. So, um, you know, we'll get into some of the specifics around this, but I think it, it really begins with the belief that every child, as you mentioned, is unique and gifted and that we can't treat them all the same. Well, I want to touch on something that you said earlier as far as equity goes. Equity is not equality, and that's intentional. Um, from an educational standpoint, um, some would say it's easier to often provide the same support to every student when you're looking at organizationally yeah. a school or a, or a district. But I think what you've argued uh, in your work as a superintendent and certainly as your work as uh, an advocate is that's not necessarily true. Can you unpack that maybe a little bit for us, um, arguing against that same level of support for every yeah. single yeah. person? Yeah, and, and I've had to grow in that. I can remember stepping into my first principalship. I was 27 years old. And walking into that school, one of the things I said I'm going to do is make sure that I establish um, structures and discipline in this school. And I can remember having a conversation with with a parent. Um, and she asked me the question because, you know, I was, I was taking a hard line with, with her child. And she said, do you have children? And I was offended. I mean, yeah. So, of course, you know, my retort was, yeah, I've got 500 of them that I worry about every day. <laughs> Three years later, I had uh, a child and I have two children now. And I wish I could remember who that parent was. I wish I could go back to her and say, you know what, I owe you an apology because you're right. Um, you know, we would never and you you have more than one child. Sure, I do. And I think if you ever talk to a parent who has two or more children, they'll tell you they are all so very different. And just imagine uh, if we said we're going to treat them the same way, give them the same thing, uh, you know, that would be to the detriment of those children. It's no different in our schools. So, you know, becoming a parent has helped me really to become empathetic to the fact that all of our children are different. And we, we can't, uh, you know, whether it's in a classroom, treat them all the same way. Now, I'm not saying equality is a bad word at all. You know, there needs to be a level of equality. 
But we have to understand that our schools, our programs, and our services uh, should be treated the same way, making sure the children are getting what they need. Well, that, that's a really good point. And, and yes, as a parent, you can definitely see the differences from one child uh, to another. That's a great way to think about it, even in, even in a larger organization like a school or even yes. a, a school district, because uh, those families come from different places. Those families come from different backgrounds, different geographies. How does that really impact how, uh, how you look at equity in a, in yeah. a school system? So I, I think it's critical. You know, we're having a lot of conversations these days around race, as we should. Um, but when we look at, at equity, let's look at it from a gender vantage point, you know, males and females. You know, there, there are differences there um, in terms of the cultures in which students come from. We need to be able to take those things into account as we're teaching our children. That's why culturally relevant teaching, uh, culturally relevant pedagogy is so important. A socioeconomic status plays a role in the experiences that children come to us with. You know, your and my children are coming to school with, with some things that other children may not be coming, some, some capital, um, some resources, some advantages. Uh, the educational status of a parent plays a role. Uh, the zip code sure. in which a child is born and lives plays a role. So we have to look at all of those factors and take those into account as we're making uh, district-level decisions, state-level decisions, classroom-level decisions, and even at the student level with, with teachers. And a lot of those decisions have to do with uh, the, the type of education, the programs offered, uh, but but I think it extends, and tell me if I'm wrong here, I think it extends to even what you look at from a building improvement um, standpoint, because uh, over the last probably anywhere from last year to 50 years yeah. ago, a school district can have those types of buildings uh, within their organization. So it it may even filter into that level of discussion. Absolutely. Too. Absolutely. Um, so one of the things, how does that equity play into informing school improvement plans? Because I think as as we kind of look forward into uh, school district work, when you're trying to either improve a school or build a new school, equity certainly needs to be one of those factors in there. But how does it apply? Well, first of all, you can tell a lot about a community's priorities by by driving through and looking at, at the environment of, of the schools. Um, you know, here in South Carolina, you know, we, we've had documentaries done on on school facilities. Uh, you know, we think about the documentary that uh, Bud Ferrillo did with the I-95 corridor. Right. You know, those things tell a lot about uh, our history and about our, our priorities. So you know, it's so important to the schools. And I'm not just think, thinking about the aesthetics of a school uh, and its campus. I'm also talking about you know, concepts that you're familiar with as an architect about environmental equity and environmental justice. Uh, you know, we have a responsibility at the most basic level to ensure that our buildings are healthy. And as we think about the pandemic, we had a conversation uh, sometime back about COVID-19 right. and, and its impact on the buildings. But a lot of our schools are still struggling with simple things like air quality and ventilation, um, the lighting in a school. Um, outdoor spaces and uh, technology and infrastructure. So in the immediacy, um, you know, I hope that with some things that are coming down the pipe, we can rectify some of those 
challenges that we faced in our schools and create equitable environments, uh, again, at a most basic level. Um, but my hope over the long haul is that every child will be able to walk into a facility uh, that we would want to send our own children to. Sure. So you mentioned some of those, you know, our, our persistent barriers, you know, as, as something that is not maybe allowing either access to programs or services, uh, or even if you expand it into what we've been talking about, the, the persistent barriers of improving schools, uh, regardless of funding or any of the other issues and topics that re- revolve around that. What are some of those barriers um, that, that persist? And what are some of the ways that we can really think about and talk about those appropriately as we start to change our schools? Well, I think that's, that's a complex question. Um, because I believe the greatest barrier right now that we're facing uh, not just in our schools, but in our community as we're talking about equity, is just a lack of understanding about the challenges we face and, and why these inequities persist. Um, you know, even this conversation around equity has become a political football of sorts, and that's unfortunate. Um, but I believe uh, school boards, superintendents, principals, um, our teachers, you know, as they become more aware of how we got here, you know, as we really step back to start unpacking some of these systems that you hear us talking about, I think it will lead to more action. Now, I do believe COVID-19 has brought brought out and brought to light uh, these disparities that we've been talking about for decades now. Um, And the fact that it has been exacerbated in communities of color, you know, it's it's no accident. You look at, you know, 50% of the deaths right now. You look at life expectancy. I mean, you had a conversation with Dr. Jennifer Parker around ACEs and trauma and what it does, uh, you know, in a child's life. Those things have been brought on generationally. A lot of people like to say, well, times have changed. You know, it's, it's not that way anymore. And we really don't step back to really ask ourselves, you know, what 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 have the long-term effects been of of some of these systems that we created. So I think the greatest barrier is a lack of understanding, a lack of knowledge. I think another barrier, language gets in the way, um, you know, as we're talking about some tough issues. So I wish we could all take a moment uh, to really spend some time educating ourselves, learning more about what got us here, what are some of these root causes. Um, and then from there, I think we can commit to you know, more actions that are going to be sustaining. That's a great way to put it. Jennifer Parker said those same words in regards to mental health, that root cause is, is where you start. And if you can understand that root cause, then you can grow beyond what the cause is and the effect is and really perform a, or give a solution uh, that makes sense to that individual. And I think that's, that's aspirationally a a great thing to look forward to in, in any school or any, improvement to school uh, as well. Well, when you think about it, I mean, even life expectancy for a child being born in, uh, I'll just take Spartanburg, you know, there are a couple of zip codes where life expectancy, 67 years old, and a couple of red lights down the street is 85 years old. So, you, you know, we have to ask ourselves, why is that the case? And, you know, and more importantly, you know, we need to go in and start trying to do some things to rectify that. You also have to ask yourself, you know, from 2019 to 2020, 
life expectancy dropped for the first time in a number of years. For African-American men, life expectancy dropped by a total of three years for a child being born. For Hispanic men, 2.7 years. For white men, it was, I think, eight months. So we've all seen a decline in life expectancy. But again, we have to ask ourselves, why is it impacting some groups greater than others? And we can say, well, let's just treat everybody the same way. But there's some equity things that we have to look at. And again, for me, it's a heart matter. You know, when I first saw that data on life expectancy, that resonated with me more than any piece of data that I've ever seen. Because you think about what can happen between those 17 years that I just mentioned in a child's life. Um, that's something that we should all care about. Oh, absolutely. So you, those that, that gets us back to that persistent barrier and the challenges that you mentioned, unraveling that very complicated and complex yeah. uh, question really it starts to to, to really need the, the attention of those, those challenges. And those challenges are, are multifaceted as well. Yes, very much so. Funding, uh, the physical challenges of schools, the, the location and the background and the demographics of a changing school district. Where do you start, Dr. Booker? Where do you start in, in kind of unraveling those challenges? Yeah. Well, you know, you certainly can't change 400 years in, in, in a few years. Um, but there are things that can take place um, right now. You know, even as a school superintendent, you know, there were some priorities that I had that, uh, you know, working with the board that that got it, you know, we put in place. So early learning, you know, the data tells us, you know, the, the time a child is born, uh, to those first three or four years is one of the most important periods in a child's life. Ninety percent of the brain development takes place there. So I can remember uh, making a decision as a former superintendent that we were going to take a school and we were going to convert it to an early learning center. We were going to serve children as early as three years old. Uh, We were going to put a health clinic in this school. We were going to put adult education into this school. Um, And, you know, we we were going to put uh, early Head Start into this school. So there were cribs in this school. So, you know, that was a priority for us because we saw the need to make sure we were addressing the whole child. Now, I could have had people saying, well, you're not doing that in our schools on this side of town. But I was in a district that recognized this was a priority. That that was equity. Technology. I can remember in 2013 when we said we're going digital. You know, we did that because there was a need to advance our, our teaching pedagogy. But I did that because 60% of the students didn't have technology in their homes. And to me, that was a moral imperative. So, you know, there are things that are taking place all across this state and across this nation where districts are doing equitable things. And we need to continue to do that. Some of them are easy to see, but there are other areas that where we have to look deeper. Um, and right. that's where we have to start. Right. And, and specifically around the building itself. I mean, I, I grew up in a yeah. uh, 1960s, 70s uh, school um, when, when next door, um, my kids are now going to a 2010 um, school. So, you know, there's a big difference between schools um, of a certain era versus today's uh, schools. And, and how does and, and the, the funding that, that's attached to those and the communities that they serve, that's that's changing often. Uh, to how how do you think of that as in your former role as a superintendent and mm-hmm. providing 
uh, the best solution for not equally, but equitably in each one of those sub communities within a, maybe yeah. a larger, broader district. So it's a challenge for, for superintendents. Um, you know, I think about superintendents who have done referendums in past years. You know, one of the things we always go to is, you know, we've got to give something to everybody. Uh, if we don't, we're not going to pass this referendum. And I can understand that thinking. You know, I think the, the best way to go about it is to have these conversations with the community, help them to understand why there are needs in this particular section of the community that may be different from this particular section. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. If on one side of town in Spartanburg, uh, there is a brand new YMCA that was built and it serves our community very well. Uh, another side of town in one of our um, communities where we're really trying to do some work, it's the north side, uh, you know, we were building a new wellness center. And there was a, a, a want in that community for an indoor pool. Because if you look at what the data tells you uh, in terms of uh, African-Americans and our Latino students, uh, the percent who know how to swim, the drownings, you know, that, that was a major issue. And that was something I advocated for uh, as a superintendent. Uh, but helping the community understand why that was a need on that side of town uh, was a challenge at times. But thank goodness, you know, we're in a community where people got it and the center was built and it's going to serve that community well. So I think that is a big part of, of equity is helping people understand that not everyone needs the same thing. Um, and quite frankly, when you're doing things equally, you tend to waste resources. So we need to put the resources where they are. Uh, and it's going to vary from community to community and from school to school. Sounds like communication is, is probably the key there. It's key. Communication and, and building understanding. Sure. And awareness. You mentioned the data point around um, uh, kindergarten or, or childhood development uh, centers, too. I wonder, um, is there data about the, the graduate uh, coming out of, of a high school um, now? Are they graduating with the skills uh, broadly uh, that a 21st century student would need for a 21st century uh, uh, workforce um, that's, that's desired out there? And if not, where's the shortfall? Does equity play into that? It, it does. And, you know, what I'll say to you is our schools are doing an excellent job. You know, we look at where graduation rates are right now. Um, uh, you know, the kind of teaching they're getting in school, you know, where technology has taken us, doing an excellent job. But we can't ignore the fact that gaps still persist. And those gaps have widened as a result of COVID-19. So let's talk about the other side of the spectrum. We've talked about early learning. Um, you know, educational attainment is, is key. Um, you know, we in Spartanburg have made that a priority. Right now, about 25% of our residents have a baccalaureate degree. And we know if we're going to have a vibrant community, we've got to raise that number. So with the work that I'm doing at the Spartanburg Academic Movement, we pay attention to those numbers. You know, you can see the inequities in terms of the percentage of our population who are white, um, who have a baccalaureate degree, versus the percent who are black. If you look at the percentage of our females who are going on to college versus our males, black, white, Hispanic, there is a huge gap between females and males. So we need to put some interventions in place to go to our males. And again, race doesn't factor into all of this. Uh, we've got gaps in a number of areas. It's like, what can we do? 
with our male students to help to make this more of a priority moving forward. So absolutely, the data tells us that that's, that's an area of, of concern, an area we've got to continue to focus. 20,000 of our residents have some college. So now the question is we're asking ourselves, what can we put in place in order to, uh, the ones who are close to an associate's degree or baccalaureate degree, are there some things we can put in place to bring them back in and get them over the hump? Now, that's an equity thing. I, I hope people won't say, well, y'all didn't do that for me. Well, I didn't need that. Um, so if we're going to have a strong, sustainable, vibrant community, we've got to put the resources and access in places where they're needed the most. So that would be a great example of, you know, an equitable strategy. I mean, it just sounds like you're, the way that you've described it is so centered on that individual uh, and, and really positive for bringing up all individuals, uh, regardless of background, uh, to, that, to the attainment level and to their best talent. Um, and I think that might be part of it as well. So we have a graphic that it shows two strategies. So with one of the strategies, you, you see the school, and then you see all these resources surrounding it. You know, it's the church, it's your civic organizations, your government, nonprofits, so on and so forth. You know, that's how we've tried to do things. We focused on the school and we tried to put the resources in the school, which is great, but that in the model we're working for. With this model, the child is now put in the center and the school and the government and businesses and faith and civic, all of those focuses, you know, that's the ecosystem and the infrastructure, but the focus is on the child. And that's how you get the equitable outcomes. We've got to shift the focus from schools to children. Right. And not, nothing says that better than the time we've spent together during COVID-19. Schools are definitely, and children are definitely center of uh, that graphic. Yes. Uh, for sure. Dr. Booker, you mentioned the term economic mobility. Tell us a little bit more about that term, though. What, what Unpack that just a little bit more for us. So I'm glad you asked that question because, really, our end goal isn't so much equity. Equity is a means to realize an economic mobility. At a basic level, economic mobility is simply you know, one's ability to advance their economic status from one generation to the next. So I think about my own family. Um, my grandparents um, did not have a high school education, but you know, my mother and my father did. They didn't have college uh, education, but their three children did. College is a foregone conclusion for my two boys. I mean, it's, you know, uh, the plans, everything was in place before we even started thinking about having children. And we've been able to advance economically over the years. Why this is so important for our schools is that there, there are three determinants that I often speak of that really factor into one's ability to progress. We talk about social capital. And for educational purposes, that's where schools come in. So we talk about social capital. We're talking about neighborhoods. We're talking about schools that children go to, the impact that a teacher can have. Uh, we're talking about organizations that they may have been a part of, whether it was scouting or Jack and Jill or a number of those pro sports, um, the arts. So social capital is something that's critical. And you think about a child who... Uh, has been raised in an environment where they don't have that social capital. Human capital is critical. Uh, you know, simple things like having health insurance makes a difference. 
you know, ironically, race is one of those human capitals because it's proven that it can be a barrier for, for some children. And then financial capital is that third one. And these are simple things like being able to save to withstand shocks, um, home ownership, and what that does to change the trajectory of one's life, entrepreneurship. Uh, so what we found during COVID-19, those of us who have positioned ourselves well enough to withstand the shocks of COVID-19, you know, we're going to continue to progress. But I think about so many people who were making their way out of uh, where they were and into a different level of economic mobility, and then COVID came, lost the job, and then all of that's wiped out. So this is what we're trying to get to. Where a child is born should not determine, in this country, where a child ends up. The sad truth is, in the South, uh, South Carolina, um, North Carolina, you know, a child born in the bottom 20th uh, quintile only has about a 45 to 4.8% chance of even making it to the top 20th percentile. Wow. And that really isn't what we're looking for with the American dream. This is why we've got to create equitable, equitable um, standards for people. Not to say that anyone needs to be given anything, but they shouldn't have barriers to hinder them from moving up that ladder. Um, you know, one of the things I, I wanted to ask about, too, is that um, what is, in your view, that aspirational aim for public education uh, today? I think uh, one thing uh, that you've talked about in previous talks that I've listened uh, to is uh, quoting a uh, one of the early um, uh, superintendents for, for Spartanburg County uh, at the time. His quote was, education is the guarantee of basic order, of industrial success, of morality, and of civilization. It, meaning education, is the enemy of disorder, of poverty, of vice, and crime. Is that still the aspirational aim yeah. of education today? So David Franklin Houston, our okay. fourth superintendent, and uh, I actually put that quote on a cornerstone at Drayton Mills Elementary School because I, I so believe in that. Uh, that was in the late 1880s. So in 1890, he built our first schools for public school purposes. Uh, he built Magnolia Street for our white students and the Dean Street School for the black students. So he built facilities specifically for, for schools. Uh, he was right then and he's right now. Um, but we've got to finish that work. So I believe in that. Now, let me tell you this. So we also have to look at the positive and then say, okay, what were some of the challenges? If you look at the school that was built for our whites, Magnolia Street School, it was quite the edifice. Uh, Dean Street was a nice school, but it, it wasn't nearly what you saw with um, the Magnolia Street School. In 1922, we built our first high school, uh, Evans High School. That building still stands today. In fact, Spartanburg Community College has moved its downtown campus into that building. Uh, you look at the architecture and the, the innate brick and the terrazzo floors. I mean, that building will last forever. Um, in 1938, we built our first high school for blacks in District 7, Carver High School. I wasn't built nearly uh, to the same level. So we have done, I think, a good job in saying, you know, we, we need to give everybody what they need. But we have to be truthful about those areas where, you know, some groups were advantaged more than others. And I think those are the hard conversations that, that people don't want to have. 
Uh, you know, you hear people talking about things like systemic racism. And, you know, even as a superintendent, as we're having these conversations, I can remember people saying, you know, Russell, you know, they're systemic racism in education. And I was so offended because as a superintendent, that's my system. So I don't see it. But I'll tell you, you know, what I've come to learn is they're not saying that you have a system full of racists. What they have been saying is that race has played a role in building the systems in which we still operate today. If you look at housing, if you look at education, you know, if you look at the criminal justice system, if we're honest, you know, we know that race has factored into some of those policies. So the challenge now is to have some honest conversations about that, Ben, and then say, how can we really come together and start to unravel some of those things? So David Franklin Houston, who was one of my heroes, I mean, he went on to uh, serve as the president of Texas University, Texas A&M, Washington University. He was our secretary of agriculture, our secretary of the treasury. So he got it. He saw the importance of education, and he did uh, try to do things to make sure that you know, all of our children had what they needed. But that work still remains and we've got a lot to do. Well, it still remains. You're, you're absolutely right. There's, there's a lot of work to be done just on simple things like uh, the building footprint and yes. the mechanical yes. systems yes. and the, and the space, that space that was created a hundred years ago versus 50 years ago versus today is different and, and different on purpose. And, and, and so we do need to think about that as we, Look at and our it buildings. It goes to show you what architecture can do. I mean, right. you walk into that Evans building today. It's one of my favorite facilities, educational facilities. And uh, wow, you know, we need to continue to do that. Absolutely, that's great. You know, we we you talked a little bit more about uh, environmental equity. I know you've been looking at that uh, more specifically for for some of your um, for some of your work. Are there resources that you want to share uh, that if others want to look at that uh, side of it as well and don't go more deeply into that topic? Yeah. So, you know, I didn't bring specific resources today, but, you know, I've attended conferences now on environmental equity. There are tons of resources out there. Uh, your organization, AIA, uh, has a plethora of resources out there about environmental equity. So it is a conversation that's been going on for a number of years now, water quality. Um, you know, I think about what was going on in Flint, Michigan. Sure. You know, that's environmental equity. I wasn't looking at it that way um, you know, during that time period. But as I'm trying to learn more about equity in the environment and the built environment, um, it certainly plays a role. And if people are interested, whether it's environmental equity, educational equity, you name it, there's more information out there. Um, than, than you can find. And I would just encourage people to to go and look and have that curiosity. Right. And I think that's a great word to, oh. to end on is curiosity. And I think if we start there, uh, we can accomplish a lot of things uh, together. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. And thank you all for hosting such a tough conversation sure. today. Idea Exchange, the future of K-12 education podcast series is brought to you by McMillan Pastant Smith. The K-12 studio at McMillan Pastant Smith is focused on helping schools prepare future-ready students. Have a question for me or a topic you'd like to address? Please complete the contact form listed in the episode description. Thanks for tuning in to Idea Exchange, the future of K-12 education series. This series is recorded at Bramble Jam Studios in Greenville, South Carolina. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss our next episode.